Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. People romanticize what something means, which is problematic, mostly in that it can backfire because it's really easy to put a lot of pressure on the thing that you've chosen to do, potentially because you used to enjoy it. It's something that you're like, oh, I, I really like, you know, running and biking. I'll just swim a little and then I can do an Ironman. So you sign up and you go all in on it. And then it comes with all this pressure because it's so easy to sort of tie our identity into the outcome, I guess, to oversimplify it. And that can feel really heavy. Welcome to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Parker, with my lovely wife and partner in crime, Meredith Root. What up? And today we are going to be talking about the three most common reasons people struggle with endurance-based goals, but also why you should still set endurance-based goals because running and endurance is awesome. And we also officially invite you to our Philadelphia in-person run weekend. Gonna be so fun. Yeah, so it's a fun one. If you like running or you're thinking about getting into running or you've never even thought about running, but maybe this is the turning point, this one's for you. Please enjoy. So I thought we could start this episode off. I just want to ask you a question. And that question is, if you could have one talent that you don't already have, what would that talent be? Probably a talent in technology. Oh, like you'd be able to use a computer? Yeah. I mean, I would love to be able to sing, but really how useful is that going to be? I don't see myself being like a performer. Something useful, like a talent in being able to operate technology. I don't know if that's an actual talent, but I think it is because you have it and I'm very jealous of it. Yeah. It's and like at least aptitude. you have an aptitude. I can learn things quickly yes. on computers. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this the other day and for the amount of time that you spend on a computer every single day, like doing your job, you are remarkably bad at working. It's them. because I do the same things for many hours over and over. I use the same apps, the same tools, pieces of software, s- software. <laughs> Yeah. So you work deeply in a very narrow area. Yeah. Up until I hadn't even used really Excel until I met you. Oh, I know. (laughs) Like I had a computer in law school. I was like one of those like paper note takers like in university. Yeah. And then in law school, like it was all computers and I was awful at typing. I couldn't keep up. But like, how do you write that fast? When I try to write I think you just get good at taking notes. And then with the computer, (laughs) you kind of have to do the same thing, like short form. But then you're dealing with like bullet points and end. Entering, and it's just you're like, how do I want to format these notes yeah. to be perfect? So, I mean, I guess if it makes you feel any better, I've written down notes for this podcast, like in my notebook, in my little journal thing, and they're like completely illegible. Like I can't even. Your notebook looks very different from my notebook. Yeah. How so? I just, I'm very neat about it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they work so hard to get you like writing well in elementary school so that when you reach your mid thirties, your handwriting is still like somewhat legible because this is bordering. When I'm handwriting words, I'll feel myself just like skip letters, like multiple letters. For example, I've written the word trying and it's T-Y-I-N-G. That's how I've written it. (laughs) 
Yeah. But all the letters run together anyway. So maybe it's just my like my fancy form of cursive. I have extremely neat writing. Yeah, but you also write so slow. I do. I write so slow and I write very small, but it's extremely neat. Like my mom always jokes that you need a magnifying glass to read my like grocery lists and things. But yeah. I did recently write a card for someone and she opened it and was like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm very proud of it. I, I recently got a card from a client and her handwriting looks and reminds me a lot of mine. And I got through it and I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, not just me. How would you describe mine? Messy. Not illegible though. Just messy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing. What would yours be? I don't know. Probably music. I wish I was better at music. I feel like you could be. It just wasn't what you did. I feel like you have the aptitude for that too. Like I can play instruments. I'm sufficient at yeah. instruments and I can learn them quickly. It's just not the path that I went down. But I'm so into music that I'm like, that would have been an alternate career choice for me is something in the music industry. Yeah. Do you remember one of our first dates? We went to the music. Oh, the Bell Studio. Yeah. And you pretty much could play all the instruments there. And is that when you fell in love with me? No, I was like, who is this person? I thought she was just some dumb CrossFit we athlete. We actually posted a video of, I don't even know what the song is, but it's like somebody plays the actual piano, like the notes, and the other person goes, dun, 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 dun. Oh, is it that one? I thought it was Heart and Soul. Oh, Maybe it was a different one. Yeah. And you taught me how to do that. I did. Yeah, I did do that. So I was, I don't know. I have a horrible memory. Mm, yep. <laughs> you were like the knuckle song. I'm like, I would not have taught you to do the knuckle song. That's like caveman piano. Which is basically my level of piano, even though I did it for like 10 years. But I mean, I was forced to do it by you my mom. Went to computer camp. <laughs> I did. I went to computer camp and I got a migraine there and I had to go to the hospital. Did you? It was all this grand scheme to never send me back to computer camp. I bet camp. that's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty happy with my skill set. I know I can get good at anything pretty much because I have an uncanny ability to like really focus on learning and doing, but that's also kind of a bad thing sometimes. Uh, you also have an uncanny ability to not focus on something. Yeah. I mean, that's classic ADHD. There's a trade-off. Yeah. I guess the reasons why a lot of people get misdiagnosed with ADHD is because their parents will be like, well, no, there's no way they could have ADHD. He can sit and play video games for hours. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. How's he doing in math class? More so for girls because for a long time, girls didn't even get considered for ADHD diagnosis. But that's another podcast for another time. Let's talk about running a little bit today. And I know we talk about running a lot, but that's because we both are in the community and so many of our clients run. We really kind of shifted as a whole community towards running. I guess there was that period of time where we both got into running and then we just started like working with more and more runners and then convincing the people who weren't runners that we worked with to run. So now everybody runs. Yeah, I don't think we necessarily had shifted towards running. Once I started running more and then you were also running, it just attracted more people who ran. Yeah. And then people who are our current clients or clients that hadn't run then started running. And then with that, which we've talked about, just like the shift away from CrossFit, even though we still work with a lot of people who do CrossFit classes. Yeah, it's more mixed. So I made this video last weekend because I've gotten back into running. If you don't know the history, like the spark notes of it is tore my plantar fascia, you know, tried to like run through it or like soon after and ended up having to take off basically a year and a half from running, got into it really slowly. And now I'm up to running like eight kilometers, which is perfectly timed for the Philly Marathon eight kilometer run that I'm doing. So anyways, I made this video kind of talking about that and then this concept of reference points. And I think for me, it just felt really relevant because I've kind of gone through this a few different times in my life as an athlete, first with CrossFit and then with running where you take a big step back for one reason or the other. And you're kind of forced to look at where you are currently with your abilities compared to maybe where 
where you used to be or where I used to be. And you have to manage some discouragement there because I think it's really easy to look back and be like, I just wish I could do what I used to do, you know, whatever. When the situation is probably totally different than what it used to be. And so the post was kind of about that. It was about reference points and about how most people at some point in their life will have a version of themselves to look back on that was just better, like fitter, faster, stronger, younger, had more free time, had less obligations, whatever it was, but objectively better at doing the thing that maybe the current version of yourself wishes that you could do. And all you do is dwell on that the person who you used to be or what you used to be good at. And you allow it to discourage you. You sabotage your potential that you have in the present because it's just like depressing. Yeah, you lose the enjoyment, which means you probably don't continue to do it, which means you stop. And then it's like, well, you don't even know what you could have done. Yeah, and even if you can't do what you used to be able to do, like, is that really a good reason to not try to be the best that you can be? So anyways, I put that video up and it was kind of surprising because it was an off the cuff video that I just like, I grabbed the camera, I put it in the road, I filmed it. And of all the videos we've ever put up on tactic. I think I got the most personal messages from people being like, yes, you know, this is me or I, you know, I've never felt so seen or whatever. And then it ended up getting reposted by CrossFit like a week later. And again, like it was received really well on their platform too. And number one, it's just, it's amazing what people will struggle with silently. Like it's amazing that this is something that people are apparently, you know, all struggling with, but no one's really talking about it. And I always think like it doesn't necessarily make the struggle go away when you talk about it, but it can certainly make it feel a lot easier or like you're less alone. So I think that that was one thing that was really helpful. But for me, like being able to finally get up in mileage without pain in my foot has been a really slow process. I went to zero and I think a lot of people go to zero and they never come back. You know, it would just be, well, what's the point of running five minutes at a time? I'm not even going to be that fast. Or, you know, maybe they should be like, well, I guess I just won't run anymore. I can bike or do other things. I couldn't go, you know, on a hike up a mountain and we live in the mountains but like the idea of going on a hike it would have been impossible it would have just wrecked my foot so it's been a slow process getting back there and then there's a lot of acceptance of like this is what I can do right now like what I can do right now without injuring myself is five minutes of running and with patience and with time that has worked its way up to yeah like 40 to 45 minutes pain-free I think during that time too when you couldn't run you shifted into okay I'll just get really strong and you did yeah that's true like you put your efforts in other places while you rested your foot. And then like after you realized that the cortisone shot didn't really work and that time wasn't really helping and it was going to take a little bit more like physio or like exercises to get it back, you finally took the steps to reach out to experts, like foot experts and stuff to get ideas on how to actually rehab your foot, which I think was a lot of the turning point for you. And again, like we talk about this, it was not just being patient. And this is so full circle because it's it's so much of what we talk about just put into play. It's not just being patient and waiting, like patience became a a very active process for me. It was like, hey, time is not going to fix this. You know, previously I've had plantar fascia issues and time was the answer. Oh, just wait, it'll go away. And that wasn't working. So I was like, okay, so I have to be patient, but I have to be doing something and I have to figure out what that something is. So I found a company through a friend called Gate Happens. You can find them on Instagram and it's run by this woman who I had a call with and she sent me a protocol and I did it and it worked. It's amazing. You're like, okay, I'm just going to have to buy a $800 Theragun. 
It was $500. $500 USD Theragun. And I don't know how much your slant board was. But oh, it wasn't that much. It was like 60 bucks. Yeah. But you do get a lot of use out of that slant board. And I like the Theragun. Word of warning. Do not use a Theragun for the first time on your calves for 30 minutes each. Oh my God. Meredith went to town on my calves at my request. You did request it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like she's going to just mangle my calves and they're going to be so loose and all the soreness is going to go away and they're going to be cured because I have like tight calves from running. First of all, I couldn't walk immediately after I stood up and then I could barely walk two days later and then it really messed my foot up. I got a foot injury. Yeah. Like under my ankle, I guess there was a nerve uh, issue from <laughs> my calves being so like Too much drilled. percussion. <laughs> Too much percussion therapy on the calves. And the worst part was like I was screaming when you were doing that to my calves. Yeah. I should have known. You should have known. But I'm like one of those people where I'm like, if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't work. Yeah. If it's not painful, it's not effective. Yeah. Which is not, I know, the right thing. And I don't take my advice, please. No. I'm not a physiotherapist. Do find an expert. (laughs) Don't don't listen to me. But listen to me when I say don't percussion your calves for an hour. Yeah. Do listen to that part. But don't listen to anything else (laughs) that she says. My physio, I was telling him about that. And I was like, so like, what's the best like way to use these things for like what I have? And he was like, well, you don't really want to be using it like on things like your spine. And I was like, you think I'm that dumb? Is that the impression that <laughs> you I think give I'm gonna you? percussion my spine? I bet people do though. Like on my back hurts, and then somebody just like puts a theragun right with the pointy <laughs> attachment right on their like lumbar. Ow. Can you imagine? Gosh, no. Horrible. Anyway, I thought that would be a good kind of an opener into our topic. Well, one of our topics today, which is why people struggle with endurance sports. I guess like the doing of them, the committing to the process of them, maybe not getting the outcome that they sort of desire. And there's three reasons that we made up as people who do these sports and work with people who sort of seek out endurance activities as goals and motivators. And the first one along the line of my slow start and re-entry into running is that most people try to go too fast, both figuratively and literally. Too much, too fast. Too much, too too fast, too soon. Yeah. I mean, I saw this quote one time and I I can't remember where it was. I tried to find it so I could properly quote it, but I couldn't find it. I thought I had it saved on my Instagram, but too many cat videos to sort through. Yeah. I have a lot of those. I have a lot of cats saved. Anyways, the quote was something along the lines of most people do their easy training too hard and they do their hard training too easy. And I like that quote because it's like a very common struggle that people have. This concept of like 80% of your training should feel very easy and 20% should feel very hard. And the ability to do that 20% very hard relies on your discipline and doing the 80% very easy. And when you don't do that, when you start to push outside of the easy sort of intensity range on that training, you just kind of end up working in like one intensity zone for everything. It's like this gray area and then nothing really happens from an adaptation standpoint. And if your easy training feels too hard, you're going to feel demotivated to do it. Like as mileage increases, you're going to be like, oh, that was going to be so hard. Where should, you shouldn't have that reaction. Yeah. Like you should basically be touching on the really hard stuff. Mm -hmm. I think CrossFit kind of like ruined that for a lot of people because CrossFit's very high intensity all the time for people who do classes or at least historically it has been. And if you follow like mainstream CrossFit.com, it's still very much like that. Well, there's that quote from Glassman, right? Don't be impressed with volume, be impressed with intensity. When really like to be a very good endurance athlete, the opposite is Mm -hmm. true. You should be looking at volume and not so much at intensity. Yeah. I think for beginners, it's hard for them to even decipher what is intensity 
intense and what isn't. And it's like for a lot of people who just run at any pace, like they just go from walking to running. Some people are so deconditioned all around or specific to running that their heart rate skyrockets to like 180. Yeah. And so like running is going to be hard, even if you're running as slow as you can possibly run. Yeah. So at that point, it's like, you know, and 5K, like everyone thinks everyone should do 5K. Well, like, no, if you're not conditioned, like 5K is 40 minutes of running for some people or longer. Like that's significant. So often it's easier for a beginner to start with a walk run, run for a minute or 30 seconds and then walk for a minute or 30 seconds. And that way you can keep your heart rate down. And it actually feels the same as someone going for a 5K run who is conditioned for it. Your average heart rate is going to stay about the same. And I'm like, I'm not an expert with like heart rates and stuff, but I did do a lot of research starting with Run Club. And I worked with a lot of people who are either getting back to running or who were starting running for the first time. And like, it did take many, many weeks of walk run. And some people who are still five months in are still walk running. Like, yeah, maybe they do two or three miles, five miles some days with no walk breaks, but sometimes it's very hard stipulated. Like you're going to run for two minutes, now walk two minutes and to help with volume and adaptation and that sort of thing. And I think like a lot of people don't even think about that. Did you ever find with that group or anyone who you work with either in run club or not that they take some convincing to accept that like a run walk protocol program is the right thing for them to do? Like, I feel like it'd be so easy to label that as like not enough or why am I walking when I, you know, I need to be running that kind of thing. I actually didn't. No one really had any issue. Like I think they trusted. And I would say now there's more issue with people as we get into the long runs, like not worrying about the pacing and just worrying about getting the distance in. Mm. So it's a lot like trying to run a pace that they couldn't do a month ago. Or like, you know, you program a 5k or an 8k and it's like, okay, now we're going to go for a time trial. Yeah. But it's listed as like easy pace. You know, people want, oh, I was feeling good. So I just went for it. Yeah. That's okay. I get it. It's exciting to PR, but that's not the intention for training every single day. And so I think it's more like at that point, reining people in or people wondering like, hey, you know, my half marathon is in eight weeks. I'm only at 10K. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Like you don't need to be running 16K eight weeks out if it's like your first half marathon in 10 years. Like there's a plan and there's a strategy to give a bit of background with Run Club because I'm going to talk about it a little bit is we started in April with a fall race date. So most of these people, it's a five to seven month commitment. I had 33 people sign up. Two people had to drop out from injury and like one person had to drop out very early. One person had to drop out again, like a month after. And then one person dropped out because of other reasons. But you know, we have had a really good retention rate. And I think it has been because I was really careful to make sure that there was enough time to get people to build their base Yeah. rather than being like, okay, we have 12 weeks to build you up for a half marathon. Like if you get a niggly injury that takes you out for a week, which we've had, because that's part of it. You have time to take a rest, to be smart about it, to see a physio and then get back to it yeah. and adjust training from there rather than it being this like thing where I'm like, I haven't been able to run for two weeks. Like I can't do the half marathon anymore, which frankly is the case for a lot of people who do 12 week builds for yeah. half marathons. So for a lot of people, I didn't even start their like builds until yeah, like halfway through the run club. Yeah. Because there was no point. It was like, you're just going to build the base. We're going to hold your volume steady for a period of time. You're going to get comfortable with like changing paces and feeling it and getting conditioned so that your heart rate isn't 180 (laughs) when you're doing an easy run. Right. And it's been great. Yeah. It's been great. So I mean, that's a classic that again, like people go too fast. That's really like rushing the process towards the end goal and going too hard 
in too short of a time, which increases the risk of injury, of course, but it also just, it makes it really hard. And so it, it goes into the psychobiological model of motivation, which is just like, how much effort are you willing to give any particular endeavor or activity? And a large part of what determines that is your previous experience doing similar activities. So if, you know, the last time that you did a half marathon, it was really hard and the training for it was really hard because you basically crammed a prep into 12 weeks, your motivation to do it again, like the amount of energy and time and effort you're going to be willing to put in is probably going to be kind of low. Like you might find yourself really struggling to like recommit to another race or, you know, commit to trying to go faster because you're like, oh, but it was so hard the first time. If you lengthen the prep period, lower the relative intensity on most training days, make it an enjoyable experience for most of the build. You start touching on some race pace and difficult runs right at the end. You run the race. You're like, yay, I ran the race. Your memory of that is going to be mostly positive. It's likely that you're going to feel motivated to do it again and try to go faster because you don't have this like, you know, body of negative experience tethered to this goal or this particular race distance. The difficulty also doesn't just come from the physical difficulty or even the mental. It can come from the difficulty of scheduling it into your life. Yeah. So if you go and you want to do, and this is just one example, like even a 16 week marathon prep, which is significant, it's four months, but you're running long runs like pretty quick like over two hours for some people if they're on the slower end. And then some of your weekend long runs can be four hours for some people. If you don't have the ability to delegate your family obligations for, you know, five hours on a Saturday morning, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into like marathon prep, that's going to be a lot for you. It's going to be a lot for your family. It's going to be very stressful for some people. But if you go and you've started with, you know, two or three runs a week, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, you build up slowly five minutes you add per week or whatever, it just becomes built in, yeah. rather than this thing that's just like many hours thrust into your week all of a sudden. So it's another reason to start small, even from a time constraint perspective. Yeah, it like allows you to kind of figure out where it fits in. I mean, a lot of people probably sign up for races, like half marathons, Ironmans, half Ironmans, things like that. And they're in that situation and they don't take the time to even understand the constraints that are in their lives. So this training just gets kind of like plopped in. And that's assuming that people even get the training in. I mean, yeah. there's also the possibility that people don't get the training in and they show up very underprepared on race day. Oh, gosh. And then like, I have legitimate nightmares yeah. about that. So then the race is really hard for another reason. Or they get injured. Yeah, or that, or both. I yeah. told a client the other day, she's been doing some sprint triathlons and she was like, I have this goal of maybe doing a half Ironman one day. What do you think of that? And I said, what I think of that is, and I believe anyone like can do that. It's just how much time is going to take for you to prepare for it. But I said, before you commit to anything, what my recommendation would be, and I can help with this, is to look at what training looks like in terms of the commitment, in terms of timeline, 6, 8, 12, 16, 24 months, and then what that looks like on a monthly basis and then a weekly basis and a daily basis. And then if you can commit to that, then sign up. But I think you're exactly right. People sign up for a half Ironman or an Ironman and they have no concept of the time commitment or just the physical demands that are required for something like that. I remember way back, there was a CrossFit athlete who did an Ironman and and like not fast. I remember like I was like, what? 
this person did an Ironman. And so I looked up their time and it was like super slow. And I don't remember how it came up, but they ended up messaging me, like DMing me and being like, oh, you could totally do an Ironman without any training, yada, yada, yada. You just have to show up. And I'm like, for me, I would never do that because it's never been about like the event or the end goal. I don't want to show up and do an Ironman. I want to do the work to do an Ironman. And if I can't get excited about doing the work, then there's no point in doing the race. It doesn't mean anything to me. What makes something like that meaningful is the amount of effort and preparation and the commitment required to show up and toe the line and meet your potential or develop a reasonable potential to perform on that day. Like just the event, that means nothing. I could actually care less if I showed up and did it because, you know, someone was like, I'll give you $10,000 if you do this Ironman. Like, yeah, I would go do it. But would it mean anything? No, I wouldn't be like, I did an Ironman. I'm an Ironman because I know that that's not true. Yeah, and I think (laughs) other people may have different opinions on that. But I always think of the training as the actual Sunday and then the race, just the cherry on top. It's the celebration of training. Yeah. If you just do the race. Yeah. It's like, it's cool. I mean, an Ironman is a pretty significant race. So like kudos to whoever can complete one. A lot of people have attempted and haven't come in under the time cap, but you're missing like the real juicy part, in my opinion, which is like the lifestyle and the training and and the community and the learning and the growth and resiliency and the grit and all that stuff that you build and the fitness. Yeah. Just the fitness. Like you don't get fit by doing one Ironman. No, you You don't get fit by training for an Ironman for like eight to 12 months. Yeah. And and that's like being really fit is cool. That's cooler than doing an Ironman. 100%. Yeah. (laughs) Killing yourself. Exactly. That's obviously our opinions because we're sitting here talking, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure it means different things to different people and that's not to like poo-poo anyone who has shown up and done that and like felt really good about it it's yeah. just not that's not me and I think people really romanticize going all in on something like that and doing it and that's number two is people romanticize what something means which is problematic mostly in that it can backfire because it's really easy to put a lot of pressure on the thing that you've chosen to do potentially because you used to enjoy it it's something that you're like oh I, I really like you know running and biking I'll just swim a little and then I can do an Ironman so you sign up you go all in on it. And then it comes with all this pressure because it's so easy to sort of tie our identity into the outcome, I guess, to oversimplify it. And that can feel really heavy. A lot of people aren't used to that kind of pressure and what it can feel like if things don't go well. We have to find a way and and whatever we do to care deeply about it, like to find a way to make it mean something to us without tying our whole identity as a human being to it and the outcome, especially in athletic endeavors. Especially as an adult recreational athlete. Which like, honestly, most of us listening are that unless you're a professional and you're making money and that's the way that you're putting dinner on the table, you should only be doing it for yourself. Because it's something that like brings you joy. Yeah. There's this Swedish speed skater, Nils Vanderpol. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And frankly, that doesn't sound like a Swedish name, but he is Swedish. He kind of like famously in his pursuit of the gold medal in the previous Winter Olympics, he kind of came out and said like the way that he structured his training for the week. He wasn't training every day. And on his off days, he would like go drink beer with his buddies. It was very unusual behavior from an Olympic athlete and a gold medal contender, but he's kind of very vocal about, I guess, going all in. And he used to be all in and it used to be his whole identity. And then that actually had a negative impact on his performance. And it was only really when he started building in balance to his weeks, even when he was in season, he had balance. Like, you know, it wasn't all about recovery all the time. Like when he wasn't training, it was, I'm going to go spend time with my friends doing things that someone in their mid twenties should be doing. And that's when he really saw his performance improve and a 
big part of that is that, you know, he had this other identity. He was more than just his times and his performance and his race outcomes. And I think when you kind of take that pressure off, then you're not competing, you know, to avoid a bad outcome. You're not racing to not lose for him. He had nothing to lose. He can go out there and race to win and be confident in that performance. So many people probably show up to race day for Ironmans or endurance sports, you know, marathons. And it's like, oh, I hope nothing bad happens. Like that's the headspace. That shouldn't be the headspace. She go out there. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to have some fun while I do it. Is it going to be hard? Hell yeah, because it's long. And I know that I can put myself in a lot of pain because I'm trained for it. But it shouldn't be, I hope I avoid a bad outcome. Like nothing good comes from being in that place mentally. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I would say from my personal experience, every time that I have only done sport, there have been two years in my life that I've done that. I got worse at the sport. My performance declined. And I enjoyed it a lot less. So there was the time I took a year off of after law school for CrossFit and I just trained until I really met you and we just hung out for most of it. I didn't really enjoy it that much. Like, there was so much pressure on my performance. And every time I stepped in the gym, I felt this pressure because I was like taking a year off that people don't normally do who want law careers. And like, it was just not great. Yeah. I didn't enjoy the training like I used to. It wasn't this thing that I looked forward to at the end of the school day. And then the other time I did it, which was even worse, was before university, I took a year off to pursue alpine ski racing at like a high level and was on the national development team. And all we did was ski. And I was borderline miserable for most of it. I had a great <laughs> time with like my ski friends, but the actual skiing and the pressure I felt from my coach, I think I cried more in that year than I've ever cried before. Like one bad result just defeated me. Mentally, I was not resilient because I had nothing else. Like leading up to that, I always had my school. Like I didn't go to a sports school. I didn't get homeschooled. Like I went to a real like pretty academically driven private school. And then as soon as I went to university and I was still skiing in university on a scholarship, my performance skyrocketed mm. from the year that I was solely focused on skiing. And there's ways to measure performance based on a points system where depending on who you're racing against and what their points are, my points drastically lowered, which means I got better after. Yeah. And I was so much happier. If I had a bad race, it was like, no big deal. Like I'm getting my degree, yeah. you know, and there's another race. Like there's nothing hinging on this race except am I having fun? Yeah. I do know that there are athletes who aren't like that. I've always been that athlete that needs something else. I do well under pressure, but like not that kind of pressure, not eggs all in one basket, identity tied to the result type pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I did have a similar experience when I took a year and a half off to do CrossFit full time, aka blow through my savings, aka be poor, aka <laughs> I accepted that I was going to be poor at the end of that, which did happen. Probably because you were flying to see me every month. Oh my God. That was outrageous. <laughs> that was at the end of that, basically. And like every time I would book a flight, I'd look at my bank account and be like, yeah, I can make that work. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm totally oblivious, but yeah. also poor. Yeah, it's okay. We did it. Every single workout would just go under the microscope. Mm -hmm. It would get analyzed. I mean, at that point too, I was kind of mashing up some training programs, but I was doing like some mayhem training and some Ben Smith training. And then I was, you know, training with one of my friends who was a games level athlete. And so it was just constant comparison. Like I would go on to mayhem and look at Rich Froning's time and be like, Ugh. Why wasn't I closer? And then I would get emo about it. It really sucked the fun out of it for me. And it wasn't until I, you know, I moved to Calgary in 2017, 2018. And it became this thing that I was doing with you. Jordan was here. There was a little community and I was also working and kind of like, you know, developing a name for myself here. The pressure came off for me. And that year I did really well. So yeah. it's like, yeah, it was just, it was just better. Less of my identity. And I do, I do think you see this more with athletes in general. Athletes have more balance. I think it's more accepted to have mm -hmm. balance 
because the mental health discussion is coming into focus more. I think you see it in CrossFit, you see it in Olympic sports, you see it like all around the world. Athletes who have families and stuff are competing yeah. and doing well. Women are having kids and coming back and doing great. And yeah. Even in CrossFit, I mean, you know, having relationships and stuff like it helps like going on vacation, yeah. not training for periods of time. And I just think it's so easy in CrossFit to fall into that trap of like, I just need to do more and yeah. more and more and more because CrossFit is just the training. And That's you're by yourself. Is. You don't have like an organization or a team being like, okay, now you get a month off, like yeah. no training for a month. And you know, you're not just by yourourself. Yeah. And maybe that's why CrossFit is changing because there are more like teams and more people kind of taking charge of the athletes yeah. health and stuff like that. But yeah. I think CrossFit still has a long way to go, but you do see more balance. And yeah. I think that's a good thing. So this is going to be an interesting transition into number three in that a lot of people struggle with endurance based goals because they don't take what they commit to seriously enough. Again, like there's a fine line between taking what you do seriously, which to me means doing the best with the time that you have to commit to it. It doesn't mean that you need to give up everything else in your life so that you can prioritize this one goal. It just means, hey, I'm going to do this. So I'm going to do the best that I can with the time that I can put into it. I think a lot of people think that committing to a race or a hard goal is the hard part but they don't prioritize the actual like daily doing of the things that will get them there because that's actually the hard part the hard part i think is doing what isn't necessarily what would be ideal, but still doing something. Yeah. Doing your best yeah. and taking that seriously. And I could talk about this for a long time, but you know, people who recognize that what they're doing may not be the most ideal because of their work schedule or their kids. So they almost kind of mail it in a little bit or, you know, they say well, like, well, it's, you know, I had to do this. So they really mopey about it versus someone who can reframe that and say, yeah, it's probably not ideal for me to be getting up at 4am to work out. But I know that if I don't do that, my day will be interrupted by my job, by my kids. And I understand that my effort will not be as high at that time of day as it would be in the afternoon. But I know that I will be able to get it in if I do that. And they commit to doing their best in that period of time. I do have one client who gets up very early in the morning. I have one. She yeah. doesn't have kids, but she does have a job that requires very early mornings. Yeah. And it's impressive. I like see on Strava. I'm like, it's like 8 a.m. my time. And I'm like, ugh. I got to get out for a run. You know, you sometimes drag your feet a little. Yeah. So I'm on Strava. And then, of course, I see hers and I'm like, I got to get my butt out the door. Yeah. She was done this like five hours yeah. ago. Yeah. And they don't accept sometimes like what their performance is. You know, I have had people say to me, you know, I ran this pace and I know it's nothing compared to what you guys can do. I'm like, don't discount yourself like that. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. I think we're both well aware that you're not going out there to win. No one <laughs> is signing up for marathon hoping to win. Yeah. At least Literally, no one, unless you're like no one Kenya. that <laughs> No one that we're working working with. Yes. So it's like you can accept that you're not going to go out there and win a medal and that's okay. But you also can... win a medal in endurance running is silly, I think. Yeah. It's like you're racing against yourself because there's all predetermined distances. Distances. Mm -hmm. It's like maybe you get lucky and there aren't that many good people in the race and maybe you get a podium, which happened to me in Calgary. But I'm like, I don't know. Should I be like standing on the podium for a marathon? <laughs> yeah. I got third <laughs> at a marathon. <laughs> you know? Neat. Yeah. Did I break three hours? No, I did not. <laughs> right? It's, that's, I don't know. I, I don't think that's bad to say. It's no. just kind of like marathons, like there's a time and you can measure yourself with that time. Yeah. You can measure yourself on the day against who you ran with, which I guess is cool. But even if it is to win, like your goal can be to win, but it doesn't change the plan of attack, which is to go as fast as you possibly can. Yeah. Or finish or whatever it may be. Yeah. That's a good point. You don't ever hear people say, 
that they have a goal to run faster than everyone out there. That's not how Unless people you're talk about CrossFit. So those are 16 minute 5k runners. So don't forget. Yeah. yeah. People struggle with taking it seriously enough to figure out where it goes in their schedule and not just winging it and hoping to get it in. And even the nutrition thing, like I see this one a lot, which is crazy because I work with like on the nutrition side of it. I'm like, what do I have to do to get you to take nutrition and inter-race fueling seriously? Because it's a major part of this, you know, and it's like, I'll send out a strategy and I'll ask how it goes. And it's like, well, I didn't exactly do that. And I forgot to bring this and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, oh, make a list, like put it on. If you're on your a bike, put it on the top tube. If it's, you know, if you're running, write it on your hand, like figure out what the system is so that you don't mess this up. Cause it's something that is a vital part of having success and enduring. And I don't know. I don't know what that is. Sometimes I wonder if people, it gives them an out. I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe some people, but it's just, it's confusing to me. Yeah. I think with my run club, I could talk about them all day. Cause they're just the best. I'm having the best time with them, but this group of people who are mostly like beginner to maybe intermediate runners running a variety of races from 8K to a marathon. The commitment is amazing. And it's not that they're hitting every single run every single week, but it's like, it's commitment to being involved and being like, okay, I missed this run. Like we'll do it this week. It's not necessarily this like picture perfect consistency, but it's like, it's commitment. Yeah. Like being committed to a goal doesn't mean being rigid and inflexible. In fact, like being committed requires flexibility. It requires adaptability because there are so many things in life that are unpredictable. And part of being committed and continuing to move forward is allowing what consistently showing up every day looks like to be different yeah. based on the day and what you nailed have. it. And they're doing just that. Like, I mean, life gets in the way. There's several different things that I can name that these people, these runners have had to manage in their life. And yet they're all still there and they're all still committed. I mean, some of them have had to change their goal. But that's OK. You know, and that's part of it. That's part of learning. It's part of dealing with the fact that like, OK, I'm not going to be able to run a marathon. I've learned that that was not a good goal for me at this time, but I can still run a half marathon yeah. or I can still keep running and being a part of this group, even if I'm I'm not going to run a race because it's not about the race. It's about me showing up and staying committed and consistent in my goal to be a runner. That was the ultimate goal. It's not about crossing the finish line. Yeah, it's just been incredible. I don't know how I got so lucky. But yeah, I mean, you're helping people through all three of these things. Yeah, I do think and I've discussed this. I think I mentioned it on Tanya's podcast, but it's difficult with races when you download a build for 12 or eight or 16 weeks, whatever it may be for whatever race. When you fall off, when something happens, it's very difficult to know where to pick back up. Yeah. And I think that can really derail people. Do I skip the week and just like go up? Or do I repeat that week? And then what week do I skip? It's difficult. Whereas with a coach, and I don't think anyone is too beginner to have a coach. In fact, I think the more beginner you are, the more valuable a coach can be. And I'm not saying I should be your coach. I'm just saying there are a ton of running coaches out there or running groups that can help guide you in, in adjusting your training if something were to happen and help you stay committed. But it is amazing when you have someone to say, hey, don't worry, I'll adjust your training for you. We'll still get you there. I know how to do this kind of thing. Or someone to say like, you know what? You've lost a lot of time you're injured. I think we should reconsider this race, maybe postpone it. And that's very valuable as well. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with getting injured. Like that happens. It's part of it. Yeah. It's just what matters is how you handle the injury and like dusting yourself off and starting back again. Like that's all life is. Like if you don't make it to your goal, just wait, yeah. give it more time. Don't give up. Keep working towards it. Like, yeah. And if, if you're giving up on your goal that easily, then maybe it shouldn't have been a goal in the mm, first place. True. Which isn't bad either. No. Yeah. It doesn't make you a bad person for picking the wrong goal. Yeah. Everybody's been there. <laughs> you did that the other day yeah. or this summer. I like this quote, Steve Magnus, who I know we've mentioned is a, an author and a running sort of guru. He's been in the sports space for a really long time and he posted this the other day. So I saved it 
because I thought that there might be utility for it. And here we are. So he said, a few years ago, I tracked improvement rates of my college runners and compared it to a whole slew of factors to see if anything correlated. Basically, like what resulted in the best rates of improvement for collegiate runners. And he said, the most important factor, they showed up to practice. He said, those who missed the fewest days tended to improve the most. And I bet if you asked him, like if you broke that information down even more, it's not people who show up to practice and perform at the absolute best every single day. It's just people who show up and that's it. Are you showing up? Because that's what matters. And the way that that's going to look, like especially if you're not a collegiate runner, which most people aren't, also aren't professional athletes, like their days and their lifestyle is not necessarily structured around the doing of this sport. It's going to be different, but there are still ways to show up. Even like showing up with some structured rest and making a decision to take a day off. Guess what? That's also showing up. So many people are capable of framing that in a negative way. I had to take a day off. So that happens. Taking a day off is a really good thing, especially if your body's like, hey, you fool. How about we rest today? There's always that question of like, and maybe this is a podcast for another time because it's a bit of a topic, but it's like, how do I know when I actually need rest or when I'm just letting myself off the hook? And that is a difficult question to answer and is very personal. I think if you're somebody who's very, very motivated and you're very rarely missing training or workouts or whatever it may be, and you're tempted to rest, you're probably not letting yourself off the hook. No, you're not. It's like you probably need rest if you're not motivated and you're typically a very motivated person. If you find yourself jumping at every opportunity to like not do a workout, then you're probably letting yourself off the hook. If you're like hoping that something comes up, that's it. If you're worried, if you're the one asking this question, you probably need the rest. Yeah. Yeah. That's valid. Let's talk about Philly really quick before we wrap it up. All right. So I let Meredith crash my run club meetup. And boy, did I. So when I started run club, I said, I'm going to be doing Philly. For those of you who want to join me in Philly, feel free. I think maybe five to 10 of my run club people at that point had signed up for Philly, varying distances, marathon, half marathon, 8K. And kind of throughout run club, everyone was like, holy crap, Alex is way cooler than I even thought she was. I'm going to go to Philly to meet her and be a part of this run club thing. So we started collecting like more and more people who are going to Philly. And then Meredith posted because she was like, well, I'm going to go to Philly and I'm going to run the 8K because she had just gotten back into running. And then we were like, let's invite everybody to Philly. And now there's a literal like group of people from our community coming. We have majority of our coaches are going to be there. Lindsay, Meg, Marissa, Mallory, Angie, Jill, a whole group of coaches. And we have tactic members, tactic followers, family members of tactic followers and members. It's going to be amazing. It's definitely like a small horde. Yeah. So we're going to be doing group meetups. The very specific details are to be determined. TBD. Like where exactly. But Friday will be a shakeout run, group shakeout run. And you don't have to run with a group. It'll be like we meet, we all do our shakeout runs because there's varying distances and, and paces. And then we'll meet back for like a coffee or whatever it may be, a chat. And then we'll have like a staging area for cheering for the half marathon. Same thing for the AK. A meetup after the AK, which is Saturday. And then a cheer group for the marathon and a meetup after the marathon. Yeah. And probably, I mean, again, TBD, but it sounds like there may be some sort of fitnessy events going on, maybe some yoga or something like that, just given the number of coaches and people that we have coming. So it's going to be really cool. Yeah. I mean, if you're on the fence about coming, come. I think it's going to be neat. It's our first in-person tactic event ever, which kind of makes sense because we're all introverts, (laughs) but it's going to be kind of nice. I think it's going to be low key, nothing annoying. Yeah. It's going to be a good time. Hopefully the weather's good. 
But it'll be neat to see the community that you've created. And I know it's it's an extension of the tactic community, but you know, you've really nurtured the run club in a major way. And I think that without that, we wouldn't be able to do something like this. You're at the heart of it. Your run club, you know, the original run club members are the soul of it. And I think people just, they want to be a part of, of you and what you're doing and what we're doing. And that's the driving factor. That's just really amazing. Yeah. I mean, the response so far to Philly has been so like emotionally overwhelming because, you know, you've created a community and, you know, you're influencing people to run, which is exciting. And that's not the reason I do it. It just so happens. And I think it's great. But to see like people flying to Philly to partake and, and it's not even like our event. It's just like we're just participating in an event yeah. and we want you to come with us. That to me is just very cool. And it's a testament to how cool we are. I don't think I do say so myself, I don't think but I'm cool. worried people are going to think we're way cooler than we actually are in person. And then it's just going to be a real disappointment. I don't think so. But I do think that it's possible to bond over being uncool. Oh, yeah. But I feel like the like uncooler you are growing up as a teenager, the more cool you are as an adult. Were you uncool? In groups, I was uncool. Mm. I wasn't like the super cool kid at school, but I was the cool kid in sports. That's fair. I was like a medium. I feel like you were kind of dorky. You were maybe kind of cool in the like nerdy group of school. I wasn't even in a group. I had multiple. I like transcended cliques. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Partially, my sister was like a cool person. She was like in the cool kid club and I definitely <laughs> okay. wasn't. And I like was in band and did shit like that. And I was in AP art. So and- what we're learning is cool is subjective. Yeah. I never claimed to be cool, but I bounced Maybe around. Maybe that is cool. It is. Did you have superlatives in your high school yearbook, like most likely to become president, that kind of thing? No. Oh, okay. Weird. I, I went to a very small school. Okay. So that it would have just given one out to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I got one my senior year and it was most laid back. That was my superlative. Yeah. I would definitely not have won that one. No, <laughs> that would not have been you. Yeah. yeah. I am the opposite. Most anal. Like and like not have... anal in the gross way. No, thank anal you. Anal in the very like type A. <laughs> annoying way most anal (laughs) no gross okay i'm sorry i did not expect that to come out the way that it did yeah yeah most anal retentive oh okay that's what i meant really mine could have been if it was like most avoidant that would have also probably worked (laughs) everyone knew of you no one knew who you actually were who does she belong to no one knew yeah that was me in high school i like this quote one of my favorite quotes the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool from Almost Famous. It's a great quote. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. So that's what I live by. And I think that Philly will be a gathering of awesome misfit people because everyone is and we can be uncool together. So this is your official invite. Get your butt to Philly. 8K, half marathon, marathon. If you need to walk the 8K, you can do that as well. Or you can just want to come and cheer. You can do that also. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. We'll need people to hold the spots for our group by the finish line and give out noisemakers and vuvuzelas and things like that. Yeah. We're going to be that group. 100%. And we have really cool green t-shirts. Very easy to pick out from a crowd. I was like, why did you choose green? I'm like, why do you think? Because it's easy to spot. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, right on. Thank you for listening to this one. We hope you enjoyed it. Appreciate your support. As always, if you would be so kind, please rate and review our podcast. It helps a lot with our ratings. Share it, subscribe, do all the things, and we'll catch you on the next one.